0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music, and more.
1: So this year, we're having a referendum, a national vote, on whether we should establish an Indigenous voice to our federal parliament. And it needs to be decided by a national vote because the change will require an amendment to our constitution, the basic fundamental documents that got our national government up and running back in 1901. Now, nearly every single American citizen is aware they have a constitution and a Bill of Rights. Here, not so much. And I think many Australians might imagine that our constitution would be more or less pretty much the same as the United States. But it isn't. So if you've ever wondered what on earth the Australian constitution is, who built it, and how it underpins our democratic system. Kim Rubenstein is here to help. Kim is Professor of Law at the University of Canberra. She's a specialist in the Constitution, and she's also the co host of a podcast called It's Not Just The Vibe, it's the Constitution. Hi, Kim.
0: Hi, Richard.
1: How well do you know our Constitution, Kim?
0: Oh, that's that's very very good question. Um, I guess best way to learn something is to teach it. And I've been teaching constitutional law. I began teaching constitutional law back in 1993, which is almost 30 years. And in fact, my co-host, James Blackwell, very happily tells people that he wasn't born when I started teaching constitutional (laughs) law. So for a very long time. And I think when you do teach something, and being a law graduate, of course, all law students are meant to learn about the Constitution. How many of them actually retain it probably is a fair question.
1: So how often? Is it that you're at a party, Kim, and someone says, oh, what do you do, Kim? And you say, I teach constitutional (laughs) law. And they say to you, Australia has a constitution? Does that happen often?
0: Well, it is amazing how many people are just so unfamiliar about what is in our constitution. They might know that we have one, but really no idea.
1: So to start off with, and this might be a hugely basic question, what does the Australian constitution do for us,
0: Kim? Well, it's really a document that's the foundation to all of the laws in Australia. So anything that happens in people's lives, every day of their lives, is in some way affected by the Australian constitution because the way we're regulated, the laws that apply to us all have to be constitutional. They all have to fit into a framework where we have states and a federal government working out how to... uh, effectively manage the way we live as a society. So it's really profound. It's one of the things I try to inspire in people that it actually has an impact on all aspects of our lives. And we saw a lot of that during COVID, which we might come back to. But in essence, it's the groundwork. It's the, the roots to the tree. It's foundational to everything that happens.
1: Well, let's talk about how that seed was planted and the tree grew up then. And we have to start somewhere around the eighteen. 80s in Australia, when we had six separate colonial governments New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland, Tassie, South Australia, WA. Now, in the whole of the continent of South America, there's a whole bunch of different nations there, and you need a passport, I assume, to go from one of those nations to another. It doesn't seem like necessarily there was anything inevitable about those colonies coming together and forming one nation. What was it that got those different colonies? talking about creating a national government for this continent.
0: Look, it's a really interesting question because you're absolutely right. Each of the different colonies were managing their own affairs, making laws, had their own constitutions as to how they were functioning.
1: And at quite a distance from each other too, when you think about it, you know, Sydney, Perth, Adelaide, Brisbane and the like.
0: Exactly, exactly. And it's quite remarkable to think about that in an age of our technological advances where we know exactly what's happening really anywhere in the world at any given time by virtue of the technology we now have, that wasn't the case. So travelling around was one aspect of it. And in fact, the whole economic structure was certainly relevant. You know, would there be some sort of protectionism between Victoria and New South Wales. If you were growing oranges in one place and you were wanting to sell them in in another, would the would New South Wales put some sort of duty on you know oranges coming in from Victoria? Would there be free trade or would there be some form of protectionism between each of the colonies? So that economic issue was one. But I think, and I've thought about this a lot in terms of my work also, Richard, on citizenship law and citizenship in Australia, is really one of the most profound motivators for coming together as a nation was to actually have a uniform white Australia policy, because that was also a real focus of the policy at the time. Each of the different colonies were working out different ways to restrict Chinese immigration, non-white immigration, and were putting different... Uh, levies on ship owners when they were coming into the country with immigrants and they realised that if one of the colonies was more lenient than the other, as you said, there wasn't really much regulation in terms of people moving around the country and you'd defeat the purpose of a stricter colonies white Australia policy if another was more lenient. So that was actually one of the key motivators to have a Uniform Immigration Restriction Act and one of the first pieces of legislation passed by our Commonwealth Parliament was indeed that piece of legislation.
1: So support for white Australia, was there really broad consensus on that between the states and within the different political parties such as they were within the Australian continent at the time?
0: In essence, yes, that was the norm. And in fact, it wasn't just an Australian norm, I should point out. This is something that was quite global. And in fact. Marilyn Lake and Henry Reynolds have written a book called Drawing the Global Colour Line. And these were policies that you could see in South Africa, in America. And in fact, some of the delegates were writing to their contemporaries in America and overseas as to the best way to manage um, non-white immigration.
1: And was that... Spoken out loud was that? Was that was the quiet bit spoken out loud at the time? Were there people saying we need a national government so we can have a national immigration policy absolutely. to keep Australia white?
0: Yes, absolutely. The introduction of the dictation test to the Immigration Restriction Act is interesting because there was an acknowledgement through the British Parliament that you had to be a little bit careful about how, how open you would be, and I guess that came from the colonial structures with non-white British subjects, and in fact. That takes us specifically to a decision that the frame made not to include a head of power over citizenship. So you would think in setting up a national parliament that you'd have some of the things that the federal parliament would be able to make laws about to be citizenship, like the fullest form of membership. But in fact, they realised that it would, and these are the words of Sir Isaac Isaacs, one of the framers, it would lead us to innumerable difficulties, and those difficulties were, what would you do with the British subjects from India or the British subjects from Hong Kong who were clearly not white if you put citizenship as a head of power you'd have to be much more explicit about your White Australia policy towards British subjects. And so that was the that was the only aspect that was slightly more subtle is was the discussion about British subjects. And again, I think that that is quite profound in setting up a structure in our constitution that enabled discrimination to be a focus.
1: So if that's the darker side of it, although I wouldn't have thought they would have seen that as such at the time, yes. there was nonetheless an inspirational side to it too, the idea that we'd form this exciting new world nation, wasn't there?
0: Indeed, indeed. And hope for a better system. And, and certainly women who were not voting throughout the country, they were voting in South Australia and Western Australia by the time of Federation, but certainly the South Australian, women and the women who were in the movement to enfranchise themselves, they saw it as a possibility of hope too. So yes, there was some hope.
1: So it was the New South Wales Premier, Henry Parks, in the 1880s that fired the starting gun on forming a national government with his speech he gave in Tenterfield in northern New South Wales, known as the Tenterfield Oration. And I'm quoting him here. He said, Australia has now a population of three and a half millions And the American people numbered only between three and four millions when they formed the great Commonwealth of the United States. The numbers are about the same. Surely what the Americans have done by war, meaning the Revolutionary War, Australians can bring about in peace. Kim, do you think the fact that we did establish a national government through peace and not through a Revolutionary War sets a different tone for our democracy?
0: I do, Richard. I do think that there is that positive aspect that it brought out the better sides of people in terms of the um, positive future that they were looking for and it not being about conflict. But on there is another aspect to it, which is because there isn't that dramatic aspect to it, that it's harder to engage people as to how fundamental and important it is as a document.
1: A constitution is a document that on the face of it is a legal document. It's about law, and you're a professor of law. But really, really, a document is more about and more profoundly about power and who gets what power. It's about yes. distributing power. If we set up a national a constitution and a national government, that would mean taking power away from the colonial governments and giving it to this new government. Politicians hate having power taken from them and given to someone else. Kim, this is just a fact of life. It's just what human beings are like. So it must have taken a lot to make them want to even contemplate doing this. You mentioned economic issues. You mentioned the white Australia policy. What else is going to work in Australia to make these guys willingly lay down some of their power?
0: Yes, that's right. Let's address the other real force about the nature of the arrangement that they all agreed to, and that was the continuing power of the states. So none of the delegates were thinking of just a single parliament. It was going to be a federal system. And this is where the American framework was so profound compared to the UK system, because of course, the American constitution has a federal system with states continuing to legislate. And as you said, they were not thinking about giving up their power in any sense. They were about having two levels of government, a Commonwealth government and the state governments. And What I think has become stronger and stronger over time, in my own sense of looking at this document, is how federalism, the fact that it's a federal system, is so powerful in the way we interpret the Constitution and how much power was retained for the states. And not only retaining the power, but an equality of power. By that, I mean that a small state like Tasmania is represented in the same way as a larger state like Western Australia. And each of the states were deemed to have continuing equal power. We really have a document that preferences and prioritises state power over what I would say representative democracy. And the the balance between that is an ongoing interesting issue. So
1: in 1891, there's a constitutional convention. It's held in Sydney to frame a document. What kind of men, and they were men, were chosen to draft our constitution. Kim?
0: So at that first stage, they were all members of the different colonial parliaments, but then there were later conventions where people were actually elected. But at this you know, first um, convention, they were all people who were practiced politicians from each of the different colonial states. So you mentioned Henry Parks, and then there was Edmund Barton, and Samuel Griffith, the Premier of Queensland, Alfred Deacon for Victorians, Sir Isaac Isaac, who I mentioned before, who later became Australia's first Australian-born Governor-General, John Quick, who was also a Victorian parliamentarian. We've got Andrew Inglis-Clark from Tasmania, who was really passionate about the American Constitution, John Forrest, the Premier of Western Australia, and Charles Kingston, a South Australian. So there are a few of the... The men, they're all very interested in politics by virtue of their positions. And that was different to the later conventions where we had more popular representation.
1: Did women have any role at all in framing the constitution? Were they present or even in the background, if not the foreground?
0: Yes. Well, this is where I love to talk about the first ever woman who put her hand up for federal politics, and that's Catherine Helen Spence. She was a South Australian. And by virtue of the 1894 decision of the South Australian Parliament to allow women to not only vote but to stand for Parliament, she put her hand up for the later conventions in 1897 and 1898 to be a representative. And, in fact, I think of her as a bit of a political junkie because she'd been across and met with Thomas Hare, who's known for the idea of proportional representation. And, in fact, she brought that idea back and was advocating for proportional representation and thought it would be a great avenue to discuss that at the convention debates. Now, if people think about and know anything about um, proportional representation, we often refer to it as the Hare-Clark system. Yes, and people- that
1: strangely abstract system that Tassie has, That means watching election night on Tassie is the most bewildering thing in the world.
0: Yeah, well, proportional representation also made its way in, of course, to our Senate. So it's not only in Tassie, but the point of Tasmania is right in the sense that Andrew Inglis Clark, who was at the conventions, talked about it. Catherine Helen Spence didn't get there, even though she was referred to in one of the newspaper articles as one of the 10 best men that you could vote for, because (laughs) there was a bit of question mark whether in a federal parliament she could actually be there. She was called that
1: one of the 10 best men you could vote for.
0: Yeah, indeed. Isn't that remarkable? But I think we should refer to the proportional system as the Hare spence system rather than the (laughs) Hare Clark system because Andrew Inglis Clark took her idea into the convention or Thomas Hare's idea. But those women in South Australia, they said to their representatives, we're not going to support a new Commonwealth if our vote is taken away. And I remind people to have a look at Section 41 of the Constitution because it actually is a provision that would not have been there if not for those South Australian women. And it tells us that no adult person who has a right to vote at any of the state elections can be prevented by any law of the Commonwealth for voting at federal elections. Ah,
1: so that's how they squared the circle, was it? So, in effect, what that meant was if you can vote and run for office in South Australia... then you can vote and run for the federal parliaments. But if that law is not provided for in New South Wales and Victoria, where there's a lot of men going harumph to women's votes, then you couldn't until they said yes to that.
0: Indeed. And in 1902, the Commonwealth Franchise Act actually enfranchised, and I'll say white women, because at the same time as it enfranchised women, the Act specifically disenfranchised non-white members of the community.
1: Yeah, well, let's get to that. I mean, as you said, the, there were many Indigenous nations here already, more than 300 of them. They all had their own laws and their laws were passed down by oral tradition. Yes. But would I be right in thinking, of course, that no Aboriginal people were consulted in the framing of our federal constitution?
0: Yes, that's the understanding. There's no no record of any involvement whatsoever. And really the attitude was one in which they were not seen to be a continuing relevance to those white framers and specifically sought to be able to enable the states to continue to enact discriminatory laws against Indigenous Australians.
1: Well, I want to spend a bit of time with this because it's yes. not really, um, I mean, it's, it's not really so obvious why even at that time why Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders would be just just glossed over because New Zealand had a democracy, Mm. built and has a democracy built around the Treaty of Waitangi that was made with the Maori people. Was there any discussion about the need for a treaty at all or any idea that that might be entertained down the track, a treaty?
0: Well, I'm sure there'll be other experts who can amplify this, but my understanding is no, there's not. I mean, it really was a question of bringing in a colonial system and as we know tr- the um settlers treated it as unsettled land as terra nullius and of course it took until the Mabo decision for that legal myth essentially to be overridden so no it was seen that they that this would become colonial territory without any recognition of the prior rights of indigenous Australians and of course their treatment throughout the country was both physically discriminatory in terms of their physical well-being and their continuing lives really and then of course in law we see various colonies continuing to to make Indigenous Australians really not part of the community, even though formally, as a matter of law, they were.
1: Throughout the 19th century, we're increasingly aware of this. There were a series of wars between the colonial governments and the white settlers and the Indigenous people. Mm. But by the turn of the 20th century, the colonial wars, the violence had mostly been quelled and those wars had mostly played out by then. I wonder, Kim, if you know if there was in any way a factor in the timing in the sense that now is the moment. Now this is what has made it such a good time to federate in Australia and establish a national government.
0: Look, I don't know this for certain, Richard, but I don't think it would have been a focus for the um, colonists of the time. I really think it were was a mix of what we talked about earlier, the economic situation, the immigration situation. Those are the policy issues that they were really focusing on in encouraging people to federate. And I think, you know, the the notion was that there would be continuing discrimination and tra- dif- differential treatment for Indigenous Australians. I mean, we can look at Section 25, which is still in the Constitution. It's a section of, which is in... They're part of the constitution about the House of Representatives and how we choose our representatives, that the people shall directly choose their representatives. But directly after that, in section 25, it says, for the purposes of that last section, if by the law of any state all persons of any race are disqualified from voting at elections for those state parliaments, then in reckoning the number of people of the state for the Commonwealth, persons of that race resident in that state shall not be counted. So they were actually putting into this document an acceptance that Indigenous Australians would be disenfranchised if a state chose to.
1: Or any other race. Or any other race. Right. Yes, and or
0: any other race. That White Australia policy was both for Indigenous and non-Indigenous, non-white
1: people. And that's still there in the Constitution, a provision that said if a state government says you can't vote, a people yes. of a certain race can't vote, yes. nor shall they be able to vote in yep. federal elections. Is that, that right? Is,
0: that is still in our Constitution.
1: Has there ever been talk about repealing that?
0: Well, this is really interesting. This comes back to the different constitutional conventions that the Indigenous communities organised in 2017 in this road to the voice, there were many things that were put up for discussion as to what needed to be changed and desire to come up with a particular proposal and not to confuse that proposal. But um, So that's maybe one of the reasons why there hasn't been a suggestion to remove Section 25. The other is, from a, from a current public policy point of view, it's less likely that we would see states discriminating against individuals and we have a racial discrimination act in a federal sense that would also make it problematic so
1: yeah but there's constitutional empowerment there it just seems really really extraordinary so the th- the feeling is that well it's not being it's not being used so there's no great rush to remove it from the constitution so when the founding fathers and again they were all men sat down to frame our constitution how were they influenced by the British system that we'd inherited with our colonial governments?
0: So this is where we see the idea of responsible government coming in, the idea that we have ministers who are not only heads of departments and responsible for executing the laws, but we also have them as members of parliament. In the United States,
1: for example, yes. a president can appoint members, ministers or cabinet members, if you like, from anywhere. They don't need to be from the Congress at all, and very often they're not, of course. But in Australia, like in Britain, they have to come from the federal parliaments?
0: Yes, that's right. So there's a specific provision, Section 64, that says when the government, Governor-General goes to appoint the uh, ministers, then they actually have to be elected to parliament. And it says they can be in that position after a general election for no longer than three months. So in other words, if there's someone who a prime minister wants to appoint to a particular ministry and their voting on their successful election is still unknown, they've got three months in that position. But if they don't get elected, that's it. Section 64 says they cannot be members of parliament. And this is sort of interesting because in terms of principles of separation of powers, which we adopted from the US... We don't have a complete separation of powers between the legislature and the executive, as we've just said, because these ministers are both members of the legislative branch being parts of the parliament.
1: And must answer to it as well.
0: And must answer to it. And, in fact, that's the principle underpinning responsible government and that term, responsible government, means that you are accountable not only to the government of the day but to the people. There have been particular practices in the past that are not as strong in our current political climate where when things happened within a particular minister's department that were not seen to be um, upholding of good governance, we have in the past have ministers resign from their portfolios. We don't see that as much in today's <laughs> politics, but that is also mm. about that notion. But ultimately, yes, they they have to be re-elected. The people decide whether we're going to vote them back in and so that's um, significant. The other is the idea that the government in the lower house has to form a majority. And if at any time there is a vote of no confidence in the government, which means that they've lost the majority vote in the lower house, then that also requires the Governor-General to seek to find another person to head up a government with a majority in the lower house. And they're principles that come from the Westminster system.
1: But when the Constitution was being framed, they needed to tack on elements of The US system to that as well. Why was that thought to be necessary at the time?
0: Well, this is about the colonies wanting to continue to make laws for their own areas. It wasn't just creating one single government. So, the framers and the colonists who were agreeing to create this new federal Commonwealth body didn't want to give up their power. They wanted to continue to make laws for their own areas. And so the best model to get some guidance from was the US Constitution because each of the states continued to make laws in the US. And that federal system was a very powerful guide to them in what they would do in creating this new federation.
1: So the Senate, the upper house, was created to protect the rights of the states and the smaller states. In particular, how closely did they study the US, which had and had a civil war at that time, not before that, over the whole issue of states' rights and slavery?
0: Yes, well, I mentioned earlier Andrew Inglis Clark, and he was a a great, I would say, using that same uh, sort of word again junkie about the American Constitution. He knew about it, he was communicating with different people in the US, and he was really excited about ensuring that the ideas from the US Constitution were part of the Australian Constitution. So you mentioned the Senate, which is exactly one aspect of it, but it's also about how you would manage the different power relationship and section 51, which is our section that lists the specific areas that the federal government can make laws on was another aspect. You know, what things would be responsible for the federal government to do for the whole country and what things would the states continue exclusively to do. And that's that's been a really interesting story as well because you have both areas of law being made in both areas and then there's a particular section to say, well, what if you have a clash if you're both making laws to do with a particular area? And the Constitution provides in Section 109 that the federal government will override any states if there is any inconsistency, for instance. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations.
1: So, Kim, the US has a Bill of Rights that were introduced as a later amendment to the US Constitution that gives Americans the right to freedom of speech in particular, also the right to bear arms, the right to a speedy trial and other rights as well. Was there ever any consideration here at the time of the framing of our Constitution to introduce an Australian Bill of Rights?
0: Certainly there were drafters who were looking at the rights issues and protection, but ultimately it was the British concept of parliamentary sovereignty that won the day. The idea that our representatives would be the individuals responsible for protecting rights and also a strong judicial system, a common law system which builds in protection of rights. So it wasn't going to be explicit. They made that decision not to have an explicit reference or a section Of rights protection, but rather they felt that it was for the courts and for Parliament to be doing that. And we've seen, again, a lot of advocacy about whether that is so appropriate. And Indigenous Australians are are another example of why um, many proponents argue for a Bill of Rights, because if your majority doesn't necessarily take into account the needs of smaller groups within the community or vulnerable groups, then it's very hard for their rights to be protected. And so bills of rights are important. But as we're discussing, the framers in the 1890s really determined that that wasn't going to be part of our constitutional package. Well, there are
1: many people today who want to uphold that decision by the framers. They would say it's better to have rights implied and assumed in Australia and the moment you put them into black letter law, suddenly it becomes too tightly defined. The rights become too tightly defined and it becomes a lawyer's picnic. Mm. But but are we an outlier when it comes to this we issue? Yeah,
0: we are indeed. And in fact, um one of the areas as I said earlier that I do a lot of writing and thinking and advocacy around is citizenship law. And I mentioned earlier there's no reference to citizenship in the Australian constitution. And I think that that has had a profound effect on the vulnerability for us as citizens in terms of rights. And there's no better example of that than during COVID when over 60,000 Australians were stranded outside of Australia without a capacity to really argue that their rights as Australian citizens to return was protected by the constitution.
1: Like in Britain, we have prime ministers in Australia, like, like they do in Canada and New Zealand as well, and prime ministers are the most powerful figures in our political system, and they have to come from the parliaments. What powers are specifically ascribed to the Prime Minister in our constitution, Kim?
0: Absolutely none.
1: Is the the Prime Minister even mentioned in our constitution?
0: No, the Prime Minister is not even (laughs) mentioned, indeed. That's wacky, isn't it? It it, it is, and it's a reminder of conventions and practices that have evolved. And again, I think it comes back to that question about rights protection too. How well protected are those conventions and practices? Now, of course, we can't imagine a world in which the Prime Minister didn't have the power that uh, he or she has now, but they're not written into the Constitution. And I think of as a result of vulnerable in times that we may not want to think about where you have people who want to exert more power than is actually expected of them.
1: Now, an alien who arrived on Earth and was given the ability to read English, if an alien read the Australian Constitution, an alien would think that the most powerful person in Australia by far is the Governor-General, the Queen or King's representative in Australia. The Constitution gives the Governor-General control of our armed forces gives the Governor-General power to dissolve parliaments. No law is enacted unless it gets the signature of the Governor-General. The Governor-General today lives in a much grander house in Yarralumla than the Prime Minister does in the Lodge. So how has it come to be, Kim, (laughs) that the Prime Minister in Australia is so powerful, despite not even getting a mention in the Constitution, and the Governor-General barely rates a mention in our public life unless they do something hideously untoward?
0: The head of the executive branch is in fact the crown represented by the Governor-General and the Governor-General is on its, on the face of the constitution extremely powerful and the conventions that have evolved have been that the Governor-General acts on the advice of the ministers of the day of the government is of the, the day. Is the Governor-General
1: legally impelled to do what they're told by the ministers or prime ministers of the day?
0: Not in a written sense. But in essence, um, again, conventions become extremely important. All here right. And well,
1: Kim, what stops the Governor-General from showing up in Parliament one day and say, the current Prime Minister is a disagreeable human being to me. I, I need you to change that person. I think
0: it's, yes, I think it would be the political convention in our system of representative democracy that would lead to outrage in the streets, whether the courts, how how much the courts would get involved is also another question as to what is justiciable, what actually comes in, what comes before the courts about the constitution. And they're another important part of our, I guess, constitutional system that we haven't mentioned in terms of separation of powers. As we do have a judicial branch, which is a separate branch. And the whole rule of law, the whole idea underpinning this notion of, of managing power is that Whoever we elect into our parliament has to act lawfully. So a constitution is part of that. But there are also other principles which are about the laws that apply to those who govern. And they're common law principles or judicial principles that have evolved that we talk about as administrative law. Yeah,
1: but you're saying it's a legally grey area. I'm not I'm, I'm don't mean to be, I'm I'm being slightly catastrophic here, I know. But but there really isn't anything in black letter law to to say a Governor-General can't show up and say, change the Prime Minister or change the Governor or I'll call in the Army?
0: Yes. Well, of course, we've got a 1975 example indeed of a Governor-General acting in ways that had not been anticipated in sacking a Prime Minister.
1: But in doing so, the Governor-General in 1975 appointed a new Prime Minister under the condition that Malcolm Fraser, in this case, would advise him to dissolve Parliament and call a double dissolution. So Mm. that was that Mm. solution there. It's a a strange situation, isn't it? But that was the first full-blown proper constitutional crisis that set Australians against Australians in the streets and in households against each other. Indeed, yes. So just going back to the framers here, they, they drafted a preamble to the Constitution. And just very briefly, the preamble, the opening, opening speech, if you like, says, whereas the people of New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, Queensland and Tasmania, humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God, have agreed to unite in one indissoluble federal Commonwealth under the crown of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland and under the Constitution hereby established, and whereas it is expedient to provide for the admission into the Commonwealth of other Australasian colonies and possessions of the Queen... Be it therefore enacted by the Queen's most excellent majesty by and with the advice and consent of the Lord's spiritual and temporal and commons, that's the UK Parliament, in this present Parliament assembled and by the authority of the same as follows. Now, there are a few things I notice from that preamble, Kim. I just want to go through them. The first thing I notice: where's W.A.?
0: Well, they were not there, were they? They weren't sure whether they were going to join this new federal system. And it was only at the very last minute, in fact, days after this act was passed, that they actually determined to join in.
1: Second thing I noticed, the reference to other Australasian colonies joining in. Are they opening the door for New Zealand to join yes. Australia here?
0: Yes, there was a New Zealand delegate early on in the drafting of the constitution, but ultimately they made the decision not to become part of this federation.
1: Are they mad? Were they crazy? I mean, <laughs> what, were, what were they thinking? We, we, we can't know that, I suppose. The third thing is this preamble makes it sound like our democracy our democratic system is a gift from the imperial parliament in London that is acceding to Australia petitioning and saying, we want our own parliament and we're going to give it to you. Is it right to see it that way or am I not getting it that way right?
0: No, that was exactly the practical scenario that the framers had to go over and essentially lobby the English parliament and, I mean, this is an act. It's a number 63 and 64 of Victoria, Chapter 12, then act to constitute the Commonwealth of Australia. So the English framing of this document is pretty profound in the sense that this is an act of the UK Parliament. And, of course, that has evolved with various different developments over Australian history, with the Australia Acts that separated the power of the English Parliament to make laws over Australia, which they could do up until 1988, so 1988, has been an, yes, exactly.
1: So the the process of independence, Australian independence, there's not one moment where we sort of went right. That's it. We're cutting the cord entirely from the UK.
0: We have not had that yet. That's that's another story. That's another session about the republic. I think, Richard.
1: Yeah. Uh, but even that process of getting our own foreign policy, our own defence policy, our independence from the UK legal system, that's a process that took over many decades, didn't, isn't it? It did.
0: And it, and there have been different aspects to it that are really interesting. So the whole dual citizenship debate of members of parliament and Section 44, you see, when this was first drafted, we were all British subjects. And so England was not a foreign power And it really was only with the evolution of Australia's legislative competence that it is now clear, according to the High Court, that if you're a citizen of of England, you cannot be a member of Parliament or if you're a citizen of New Zealand. So former British colonies that we were connected to as as common British subjects, equal British subjects, that's changed. So citizenship has had a, a role to play in that evolution as well. But it's certainly not straightforward. It's very very nuanced in the way it's played out.
1: So various votes were put to the various colonies and they were passed in all the colonies and we got a national government up and running in the year 1901. Since 1901, our constitution has been amended eight times. The process to amend it is complex. You've got to get a bill through both houses of parliament. The vote's got to be put to the people and you have to win a national majority but also a majority in a majority of states. So you need four out of the six states to vote yes, as well as a national majority. Is this an unusually high bar to clear compared to other democracies, Kim?
0: Well, I think the first thing to say is that you wouldn't want it to just be a, a simple process because, as we've been talking about, it's a pretty fundamental document about how it regulates the way we live our lives. So to be able to just very easily pass it through a parliament wouldn't necessarily be a a good thing. But the double majority is quite onerous. And again, comes back to that theme we talked about earlier about the states wanting to maintain their equal power. And so in a federal system, you've got this balance of your majority of people, but also a majority of states. The starting point that's interesting is that it has to come through parliament. And I think we're seeing today the very sort of politicised nature of discussion about referendum change. Whereas if you compare it to, say, Switzerland, where individuals can nominate and sort of essentially self-start a constitutional change if they gather a sufficient number of votes and then it goes to the entire people, that's another way that perhaps in the future we might need to look at if we have a scenario, for instance, this year where it is possible that a majority of people might support this referendum but not obtain the majority of states four out of the six states
1: the us had a civil war on the principle that the states had come together in a union that could then according to abraham lincoln never be dissolved is that true for australia and the reason why i ask is because i know wa had a vote in 1933 to leave the commonwealth yes they That's they, right. they they wanted voted to yes secede. they wanted to secede tell me what happened there
0: well, they weren't successful, as we know, because they're still part of us. But in essence, they needed the support of the British Parliament. And the British Parliament said, well, you're going to have to get the support of the other colonies. And so they were not successful in So that.
1: following that, the people of WA picked up their guns, painted their faces red, and said they were <laughs> going to shoot any federal official that came into Perth after that. Is that what happened? Or why did they accede to that?
0: their route that they had actually sort of favored was wanting an imperial act of parliament to amend the constitution and so i guess they chose a route that didn't that didn't lead to the results that they were wanting to because the british parliament rejected their petition and maintained the system as it was but i guess what, oh, this your... is a funny
1: country, Kim. This is a funny country.
0: Yes, yeah, we actually want to leave Australia, abiters.
1: but we want the British to permit us to leave Australia. Yeah, is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah. They were bitterly disappointed, and but they didn't go on to a revolutionary or violent end. And maybe that comes back from the starting point as well, Richard. That you pointed out that <laughs> ours is a constitution out of peace rather than out of war.
1: So now we come to 1967. And this is what we think of as the gold standard for successful referendums to change the Constitution. This was the referendum that put was said to, we think of it as the Aboriginal referendum that put Aboriginal people in the census and thereby gave them the right to vote. Tell me what that referendum did do and what it did not do, Kim.
0: Well, it didn't actually formally put them in the census, actually. And that's something we're now used to that. Uh, reference to the counting of people for Parliament in that Section 25, there was also a section that no longer exists in relation to the reckoning of numbers of people. So in 1967, there were actually two questions... One was that there was a section 127 that used to exist, which said that Indigenous Australians or Aboriginals would not be counted for the purposes of counting for our constitution. A lot of people refer to that as the census, but in fact, it's actually about the apportionment of people from the House of Reps and the Senate. So, But it still was a very profound statement about the earlier notion that Indigenous Australians were not to be counted. So that was successful in being removed. And the other aspect, which is also technical and quite interesting, is that the federal government, in working out the things that it would make laws for, and as I said earlier, they wanted to allow the states to continue to make laws over Indigenous Australians. So section 51, subsection 26, so I know that that's very specific, but it says that the federal government has the power to make laws and the wording is the people of any race, and then before 1967 it says, other than the Aboriginal race in any state, for whom it is deemed necessary to make special laws.
1: This is very complex and hard to get your head around. It's like people trying to amend the Facebook terms and conditions or something like that. Essentially, nonetheless, it did accord greater rights for Aboriginal people, and the, and the result was 91% voted yes vote. What was the, the reasons, ultimately, why this referendum was so successful, Kim?
0: Well, I think one of the most profound aspects to it was the bipartisanship, the idea that this was not about party politics. This was about all people coming together to support change for a fundamental document like the Constitution and its treatment of Indigenous Australians. And that also had remarkable people from around the country who really worked together to ensure that people understood that this was an important, both symbolic and practical change.
1: So we get to 1999, which was the most recent referendum we've had. There were two referendums, in fact. That was vote for to establish an Australian republic and a new preamble to the constitution that would recognise Indigenous people. Both proposals went down nationally and in every single state. Mm. Now, at the time, it was all sorts of interpretations were put on that vote that people were hanging out for a better model of a republic or people were voting for the status quo. But there wasn't the status quo afterwards. Paul Kelly, the former editor of The Australian, said the upshot of the vote in 1999 was it left a more powerful prime minister who took on a lot of the ceremonial functions of the governor general, a diminished governor general and an absent monarch. Do you agree with that assessment?
0: Look, I think it has had a profound impact on many things in terms of one, people's knowledge about our constitution, because that's a very long time ago, 1999, for the last referendum. And most people, I think, become aware if they haven't learned about it at school or done constitutional law, they learn about the fact we have a constitution when they have to be involved in changing it. So it's a very long time. And so I think it did have a profound impact on people's engagement with the document. And I also think that the notion of the ideal being an aim for constitutional change is something that we have to deal with as well. Because as you mentioned, really what became so difficult was the model that was being offered rather than the principle that we should be an independent country with an Australian as a head of state.
1: So now here in 2023, this new proposal is going before us in a national vote to establish an Indigenous voice to parliament. What form is this proposed voice Going to take?
0: Well, this is going to be a new section of the Constitution, and in fact, a new chapter. And it states in recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the first people of Australia. So it's a statement of recognition. And then it says one, there shall be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice. Two, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice may make representations to the Parliament and the Executive Government of the Commonwealth on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And three, the Parliament shall, subject to this constitution, have power to make laws with respect to matters relating to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, including its composition, functions, powers and procedures, providing an avenue for this body called the voice to make representations, to give advice essentially to those structures that we have, the parliament and the executive government, on matters directly affecting them.
1: The opposition leader, Peter Dutton, has said that he thinks a constitutional amendment is inappropriate and unnecessary and if he were prime minister, he would establish by legislation a voice to parliaments. Just take me through some of the arguments for and yes. against having well, these legislated uh, voices to parliaments.
0: I think it's interesting in answering that to go back to the process here, Richard, in terms of how this suggestion came about. As I mentioned earlier, um, the whole process comes from Indigenous Australians actually picking up the constitution. I'm actually holding my copy here, my green covered copy. And they actually engaged with the document. So, It's recognising how profound the constitution is in structures that impact on all of us as Australians and Indigenous Australians essentially embracing that and saying we do want this in the constitution rather than it just being a piece of legislation. So one thing is it's an affirmation of the value of the constitution and secondly, I think the arguments in relation to it just being legislation is the reminder of the fact that legislation can be changed at any point but it's guaranteeing that that voice can't be legislated away. Some form of voice will have to exist, and that structurally is much more certain. The actual make-up of it will actually have to go back to legislation, and so that legislation will actually have to happen after the referendum. And what are
1: the arguments for having a legislated rather than a constitutional voice to parliament?
0: Well, built into this, as I've just said you will have to have Parliament make it, but if you only had Parliament making it, then it can be removed later. So I guess if someone wants to be able to remove it, that's an argument in favour of it only being in legislation.
1: The proposal would allow a voice body, however it's constituted, to give advice to the government of the day and to the Parliament. What obligation would the government have to carry out this advice?
0: In essence... Parliament may not choose to follow that advice and that's within the power of any parliament. But ultimately, by having a voice that is protected, it's likely that the rest of of the community, other non-Indigenous Australians, will know what it is that the voice has put to parliament. And so the parliament will have to be more accountable to us as voters as to why it is or isn't following the advice of the voice. Or it may be that there are multiple Positions that the voice might take on a range of different issues. But ultimately, there's nothing to force. There's no veto power here. So there's nothing to force a parliament to follow the advice. And that's then about our system of representative democracy, how how much that will impact on voters in the way they choose to reelect their politicians.
1: Well, there are people who oppose the voice that would argue that because that advice doesn't have to be taken, what you have is a toothless tiger here, a relatively powerless body.
0: Well, I think that there's an element where certainly it can't ensure that what they advise is followed, but I do think that there is a difference here because of the place that it will uh, play in our system of representative democracy going forward, that there will be more accountability for those decisions.
1: The coalition, both the Liberal Party, Federal Liberal Party and the Federal National Party are advocating a no vote. Now, the iron law in Australian history is that referendums to change the constitution will always fail unless they have bipartisan support. Has the opposition, of the opposition, pretty much ensured this proposal will fail at the ballot box, Kim?
0: Look, I think that we're living in different times and obviously the nature of of public discourse and sharing of information is vastly different from the 1990s. The role of social media, the role of individuals within the community has um, changed. And so I don't think it's fair to say that there is a rule that now it has um, occurred means that it won't pass. I have a lot of hope that people will engage in the issues and really make informed decisions and not just rely on the political Partisan sort of approach that our parliament has taken to this change.
1: Your podcast is called "It's Not Just the Vibe; It's the Constitution." But there is plenty of vibe required to make the constitution work, (laughs) isn't it? Because you can have as good a constitution as as anywhere else, but they fail because there isn't that underlying willingness from all parties, all parts of the country to make it work, to keep the democratic show on the road. Yes. Do you think that's why we can sort of look at the relative stability of Australia and our constitution rather than other places?
0: Yes, I think that's a really interesting question. I think it would be stronger myself if people did have more awareness of it. And it's not just because I teach it or I've made a podcast. I do think it's pretty fundamental to citizenship and to your place in the community. Yes, it has been stable in many ways for a significant period of time, but that's not a guarantee for its continuing stability if the document itself doesn't keep up with the needs of the community.
1: Kim, it's been great to speak with you and thank you very much for giving us a big explainer on that great, big, complex thing that is the Australian Constitution. Thank you so much.
0: My absolute pleasure, Richard. You've been listening to a podcast
1: of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au conversations.